You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. I am Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Very happy to have all of you along for the ride today. You know, one of the things that I hate paying for, I hate paying for disposable razors. Every time I go into the store, and and this often happens with my kids when I'm loading them up for a trip off to college or summer camp, or we go into the store and we're loading up on toiletries, and you come to the aisle where you got to buy disposable razors. And could there be a product that has become more and more expensive over the years? We know there's a big pink tax on disposable razors. They cost significantly more if you buy the ones that are made for women as if you buy the ones that are made for men, which is why I buy the ones that are made for men. And I can tell you from personal experience, it makes absolutely no difference. But I learned from today's guest, Clark Howard, that it is very possible to take one disposable razor and make it last an entire year. Not that I do this, but I try to be better with my disposable razors than I have in the past. And the way that you do this is you just wipe it off on a towel. Evidently, disposable razors do not dull as frequently as you might expect that they would unless you leave them in the shower wet. So when you get out of the shower and you wrap yourself in a towel, just take 10 seconds, even a fraction of 10 seconds, and wipe that disposable razor off on your towel, you will save yourself a lot of money. And that is just one of the things that I've learned from my guest, Clark Howard, over the years. You know Clark because he has been on the radio advising consumers, empowering consumers to make better financial decisions when it comes to their investments as well as their purchases. He is known to be a straight shooter and a font of information. And I spoke to him when I was out at FinCon in San Diego. It's Jean Chatsky and her money. We are on a road trip in San Diego, California at FinCon, which is a conference where all people interested in money and personal finance and financial technology unite once a year to debrief each other, share information. It's an incredibly collaborative group. And my friend Clark Howard, who I have not seen in it's been like 10, 15 years. I know. That's a shame, isn't it? It really is a shame. We have to do something about that. Clark was here to give a keynote speech. He was on the main stage yesterday. It was just terrific. Oh, you're kind. I'm, you. I'm so happy to be able to talk to you not only about what's going on in your life, but about how strategies for making the most of your money have changed through the years. Because you and I, we've both been doing this for a good two decades, if not more. Well, I'd say the biggest change is that people used to think it was just cute to save money or to find a deal somewhere or whatever. It was a game. And then, well, life happened. And the Great Recession, the enormous job losses... 
the very slow recovery, people who lost their homes. It's a whole different conversation now and a level of not gloom and doom, but a better focus about why are we trying to be more careful with our money? It doesn't mean that people are getting to where they need to be, but the conversation is one people are more receptive to, and it's a more serious one. Well, I think people have finally come to accept the fact, and and I, I often I look back to the fact that right about the time I started reporting on personal finance, the 401k was invented. And if anything changed my trajectory, it was that. It was the fact that pensions went away oh. and individuals had to step in and assume responsibility for the years after they stopped working. And people have not been able to adjust to that. And the interesting thing is that that's not just a United States problem. No. It's going on in other countries in the world where they got rid of some form of centralized retirement plan and put the responsibility on the individual. Individuals have not been able to take that up. And it's causing real problems for people as they age in the entire developed world. As people step into their later years or as we look ahead, and our listeners have a variety of trajectories, right? Some have 10 years, some have 40 years. What do you tell people who are just starting and what do you tell people who feel like, oh my gosh, I am running out of time? Well, first... Most people don't really seem to think about saving the first dollar for retirement. Most people, till they've passed their 40th birthday. There's something about turning 40 that people realize, hey, I'm not a kid anymore. Yeah. And they start thinking about what's going to happen. And then they start to panic. Because if you look at any of the math formulas that say if you wait to start saving till you're 40, how much of your pay you have to save, it can really shut people down or depress them. Mm -hmm. So what I say is you start saving when you start saving. And if you start in your 20s, it sure is a lot easier because you have to save relatively small dollars every pay period, every month, every year in order to be financially secure in retirement. But if you wait till you're in your 40s, what it means is that likely you're going to have to work longer, which is not the end of the world. It really isn't. I mean, I, I'm one of those people who I can't imagine not working. I, I kind of, and this, this may be a sad fact about me, but I just don't know what I would do. That's because you're a New Yorker. No, what, what I that? am not what a New Yorker. Can we just put that to rest? I am from the Midwest. I grew up in Wisconsin and but Indiana how long is, and but West you've, Virginia. But you've been in New York how long? All right, now? I've been in New York 20 30? 30 years. I've been yeah. in New York See, if you years. went back to the Midwest, you'd find plenty of things you could do not working. <laughs> it's hard in New York to not work. I, I'm sure. No, I like what I do. I also, I watched my dad, who loved what he did, and in my mind, after he retired, he died. Oh. You know, and I, my mother says that I have rewritten history, and that's not right, and he was getting sicker, and that's why he retired. But I feel like this, you know, for me, this is one of the things that keeps me going. Well, for me, when the time comes that I do bag work, I'll volunteer a lot. Sure. I'll spend a lot of time at the beach because I'm, I'm a water baby. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to be somebody, oh, I'm going to play golf four or five times a week. But I have a huge number of volunteer activities I love. 
and I'll be able to devote more time to them. And so I look forward to not having this fixed schedule of what I have to do day after day. But I keep working. I mean, truth be told, I could have retired financially a long time ago, but I still love what I do. So you keep going. But that's the coolest thing is when you work because you want to, not because you have to. And you mentioned the variety of people here at FENCON. One of the things that's interesting when you talk to people that are highly motivated here about money is many of them have this focus and goal to be financially independent in their 30s or 40s. And most of them are going to make it because they're so single-mindedly focused on it. And then they'll have the choice to do whatever they want to do. I have yet to see a budget or meet a person where I couldn't eke out additional savings. It has to be your priority. It has to be something that you've decided, okay, well, I will live a little less large. I will make these changes. And they may be small changes, but they may be large changes just to make this priority of having a secure future happen. You're completely right, and the question is setting that goal. You know, it's hard for people to make the current change in their lives. I'm not even going to say sacrifice, because there's enough money. Once you're past a poverty-level wage, there's enough money in your budget that you can change the priorities and have more money to meet the goals you want to. But most people don't set out a specific goal. They don't really think about well, what would I do? It's almost like it goes into the ether. So if you have a target that's really important to you, then you're more likely to want to make the change to meet that target. And I find in most of the people I talk with, the area where they can have the biggest impact over time with their money is what they're spending on transportation. Really? Yeah. Not food. Because food food. is one of those things that just seems to, and maybe that's a New York thing again, but it's Yeah, because most people in New York don't have cars. They don't have cars, and they, well, and they just, the amount of money that I see in people whose budgets are out of control that goes to takeout Uh and goes to eating out and just... So you know my nephew who lives in New York. Yes, I do, I do. So my nephew, my nephew... (laughs) is a a lawyer in Manhattan, and he has never turned on his stove. Does he keep sweaters in the oven? I don't know if he keeps sweaters, but he spent a ridiculous amount of money building this magnificent kitchen, (laughs) you know, because that was so the thing when he was building out his place. Stainless steel appliances and all that. so he's got all that, but (laughs) we were there and we needed to boil water, and he didn't know how to turn the stove Were you delivering a baby? No, no. <laughs> Somebody wanted to have hot tea. so And his answer would have been to go out on the street and buy one. My yes. answer is you boil the water. Boil the water on the stove. Let me just pause here to remind everyone that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like me and so many of the women I know take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we've worked so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find 
More conversations like this one with Clark Howard, you'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married, divorced, starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. I'm happy to be back in San Diego with Clark Howard. I want to turn a corner here for a second because sure. you are, you probably have the best reputation in the country for saving money, right? You are known for whatever it is, whether we're talking about fees on investments, whether we're talking about buying a car, whether we're talking about uh, using your razor blades over and over and over how's again. How does it look? How's, you how's look, it you look great. How many, how many shaves? So people don't know this, but Clark will make a single razor blade last an entire year. Yeah, right? it's not hard to do that. Uh, well, you dry it off. You yeah, taught me this. Yeah, just dry it off. Bam. It's done. Yes. No, you've got a nice, clean, close shave. Uh, oh, good. Very good. Because I was pretty asleep when I shaved before <laughs> I came down this morning. How have your strategies for figuring out how to get the best deal on whatever it is we're talking about morphed with technology? Well, because the access to information on your smartphone can be a double-edged sword because it can encourage you to buy something you really don't need or it can help you save money on the things you do need or buy. And so... I look at it as a blessing and a curse at the same time. But the access to pricing information real time as you're out and about or even as you're shopping for things online on your phone or on your laptop, it makes an enormous difference in what you pay. And one area I've been pounding again and again lately is if you are an Amazon Prime member, you're overpaying repeatedly for the merchandise you buy. Really? Explain. Amazon is using pricing algorithms that the prices of items go up and down like a seesaw. A lot of people no longer comparison shop because Amazon has developed the most sophisticated customer service delivery system there's ever been. I mean, what they have done is extraordinary. You think back, what did they do? They were a bookseller. Right. They They are... completely a different thing now. And so if I pick up my phone, go to my Amazon Prime app, I can even use Prime now because I'm in a one-hour delivery market, and suddenly the stuff shows up. But the problem is what also shows up is a bill on my credit card that's significantly higher than if I shopped around in the market. So convenience kills your budget. So if you are an Amazon Prime member, you should be making sure that you're getting the best price as well as getting the free shipping. A hundred percent. And here's one that I've been talking about that just stuns people. Because there are a lot of people in America who either don't live near a Walmart or won't be caught dead in a Walmart. (laughs) But Walmart has a shopping program called Shipping Pass that is a no-frills thing. It's not like Amazon Prime where you get the music and the television and all that. All you get is two-day delivery of goods. But in most product categories, Walmart is cheaper than Amazon. And the bonus is if you hate going in a Walmart store, you don't have to. You just join the shipping pass and you can try a free trial membership like you can with Prime. Sure. And you start buying stuff there. You're going to save money most of the time buying from Walmart versus buying at Amazon. 
And, and it's the stuff very just shows much the up. same stuff. Same. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, some of the brand names may be different, but the depth of merchandise is very similar from both companies. But most people that are ultra-white-collar who are Amazon Prime members don't even think about shopping at Walmart. But if you, they might go to Target. You know, Amazon Prime members like Target. If they go to a physical store, they'll go to Target. But what they're missing is the money they can save if they go to Walmart.com. As you've looked at the sort of industry of shopping around in the past, I don't know, three, four years, a number of companies have sprung up that will do the shopping around for you if you won't do it for yourself. And I'm talking about um, for your cell phone bill and your internet and all of those monthly services. What do you think of them? There are companies like Bill Fixers, Bill Cutters, Shrinkabill. I love it. And there, I forget which one it is that will actually impersonate you and call and negotiate. That's Bill for Cutters. I love that because people cannot stand having to deal with customer no service at a television provider or an internet service provider or whatever. And for them to do it, and they know all the tricks, they know what to hit on the prompts, they know what to say to the person on the phone, and all you do is save money, but you share the savings with them. For most people who know they should go negotiate, they should call around, they're not going to do it. Why won't they do it? You've been telling them to do it for years. I've been telling them to do it for years. I actually enjoy doing it for myself. My husband says I have one personality when I talk to everybody and another personality when I talk to the cable company. You're a shark when you call the cable. I am. I am good. I am good. And I enjoy it. Well, right now, it's never been easier for people to do this for themselves, for pay TV, because the t- pay TV industry is in slow decline, not, not significant decline, but gradual decline. And you've got a lot of players now, where before we really didn't for pay TV. We've got all the competing streaming services. We've got the cable monopoly that serves you, the phone monopoly. But then we've got Dish and Direct. And so if you will learn the game of hopscotch, where the best deals are always offered to new customers... Every two years, like clockwork, switch your pay TV provider. You'll always be cutting your cost in half or more. Do you have to switch, or can you call and just tell your current provider that you're going to switch and ask for the retention department? Yeah, you get the retention department. You will normally not save as much as if you're willing to go all the way and switch companies. But if you shop around and you find, okay, let's say you were direct, and Dish is offering a deal right now for $39 a month. So you call up direct and you say, well, you know, I'm paying you 160 a month and I'm going to go to Dish for 39 and they'll say, well, wait, 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 we'll do this for you. We'll lower you to 79 a month or whatever. And you have to decide how much is it worth waiting for the service appointment and then maybe drilling a few holes in your wall and putting in the new equipment and stuff. The more you're willing to disrupt your life, the more you save. Like it's an example I give about apartments right now. You know, apartments have been significantly overbuilt around the uh, most every city in the country. Right. They've overbuilt in the last 24 months. They hit the point where there was a shortage of apartments for a number of years. There were so many projects already in the ground. Now we've got all these units coming online and not enough tenants. So this is the best year in probably the last 10 to shop your rent and be willing to move from one apartment to another. And that's a big monthly expense for people. It is. Is it true in most parts of the country? It's in 
probably not in New York or Boston or San Francisco, but everywhere else in the country where it's easier to permit and to bring projects out of the ground, there's been enormous overbuilding. Even in mid-sized markets, apartments have been overbuilt. I've been wondering the same thing about hotels, because it seems like there are hotels sprouting up, and often Isn't the smaller hotels everywhere you go, right? I love that. Yeah, because there's one theory that hotel rates have moderated because of Airbnb, but I think that may be a part of the equation, but I think all the new limited service hotels that have been opening up all over the country with massive room counts. You know, it may be 144 rooms at a time, but the cumulative effect of all those properties has made it great. And I buy almost 100% of my hotel nights. I buy on Priceline and Hotwire, mm-hmm. and I never know where I'm going to stay till after I bought it. I do the same thing, yeah. And I, I always look for a four-star, which is probably more like a three-star, three-and-a-half, because they inflate the star levels. But... I'm seldom disappointed, and I just save a fortune. When I'm going to uh, CES in January, which used to be called the, the Consumer Cons- Electronics yeah. Show in Las Vegas, world's largest trade show, at least it has been in many years, hotel rates go through the roof. So I have my own strategy how I do that, and so I just got a room on Priceline at a Westin for $65 a night. Oh, my goodness. During CES. And all these people that are on expense accounts, because you know it's me paying for Absolutely. myself. You know, who are paying 850 a night or whatever. And they're like, how did you do that? You know, they're paying more to park their car at the hotel than what I paid to stay in my hotel. Well, you are just amazing and a complete joy to talk to, especially for somebody like me who likes to really work the system like this. And I know for our listeners, too, what, what's next for, for Clark and for Clark.com? Well, the big, the big change for us has been that I'm still in old media. I.E. radio, radio newspapers. Radio, TV, newspaper. Mm-hmm. And so I do heavy rotation in all three, TV seven days a week, radio five days a week. And so that's still the core to what I do, but our, all our growth is on the digital side. And we have 19 digital products now that we provide in the marketplace. And my thing is that you meet people where they want to be met absolutely, with the information in the format that they're most comfortable receiving it. And we're going to keep doing that because I have a mission that's very simple. It sounds trite, but I really want people to save more and spend less because we have a cultural problem in the United States that Americans more than any other country on earth is our income goes up, our spending goes up in tandem. And in so many other cultures around the world, as your income rises, people don't trend line up their spending at the same rate, and they create financial security by being significant savers. In the United States today, people save a nickel of every dollar they make. So I'd say that I'm a big fat failure after 30 years of doing this, that that needle hasn't moved at all. But that's what I'm about, is trying to get that needle to move. Well, it has moved, right? If you look back at 2008... Dollar one in spending. A dollar one in spending for every dollar. So we've moved the needle by six cents, but I am with you. Saving more can fix a multitude of problems. Yeah, because we're looking to government for solutions to bail us out. And they're not coming. Government doesn't have the money either. So it's going to have to be me, myself, and I. 
And so an underlying theme of what I'm about is personal responsibility, but never shaming somebody about the responsibility they need to take on, trying to encourage people to take on that responsibility. And to realize that once they take it on, they're going to feel really, really good about the fact and powerful. Empowered. Empowerment. Yeah. Yeah. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's so great to see it's you. It's great to see you, too. We'll do it again soon, I hope. Great. So Kelly has joined me in the studio. Kelly has this secret Halloween life and tends to go to... No, you do. <laughs> I, we've been working together how many years now? Uh, three years now. And how many years have you gone to Heidi Klum's Halloween party? Ooh, two out of the three. This yeah. would be the third. And, and it's fabulous, it's right? So I fun. live a little vicariously through your Halloween. It's so much fun. Well, Heidi, she just really goes all out every year. Like, she's been doing this party for I don't know how many years now, but like months of preparation go into her outfit or her costume, I should say. Right. And who knows what she's going to be, but she always kills it. She does well, you, a great well, job. She was Jessica Rabbit last year, she right? She was, but like she, it looked like she went, underwent like plastic surgery. Like they did a whole prosthetic for her face. All right. Well, forget about her. What are you going as? I'm going to reuse my costume and I, that I don't think got enough play last year. I was, uh, Top Gun. I did a Top Gun outfit and I just, I, I feel like it could, it could get some more airtime. Okay. Yeah. Airtime. That so, was, so was... they, did they film this? No, uh, no, I hope not. Um, <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, like, I, I feel like it just, it, it didn't be... get enough attention. Yeah. All uh, right. Yeah. We'll take some pictures. We'll post them. Okay. Sounds good. All right. What questions do we have? No, 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 no. What are you going to be for Halloween? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't put a lot of thought into it. You know, what my Halloween is usually answering the door and I have a witch's hat. Okay. That I put on, and I have a wig that I put on under the hat. You have a wig? I do. I have a witch's okay, wig. Okay, well, if to I'm taking the pictures, hat. you have to take pictures, and, too. And um, I get a lot of trick-or-treaters, which I love. Which is so nice. It's so nice. That's really nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I eat all the extra all Twizzlers. The, the Twizzlers? I thought Hershey's. I like Hershey's, you know, but Hershey's I have sort of every day of the year. It's so. <laughs> okay, not a novelty. It's not special. Yeah. Not special. I like a little Twizzlers during the uh, Halloween season is always good. Well... I have a couple questions that we can run through this week. Jennifer on Facebook, she wrote to us saying, Hi, Jean. Love the podcast. Thank you. Your Q&A episode got me thinking. I'm a 31-year-old, and I'm currently contributing 12% of my salary to my 401k. The company match only goes to 6%. Do you think it would be wise to only contribute 6% to my 401k and put the other 6% in a Roth IRA? I never considered to have another account until I heard you talk about the flexibility of a Roth IRA. So I don't know that I understand the math on her question. So she's contributing 12% and the company's contributing 6 so she's putting in a total of 18 I think she's – so I, th- yeah. this could be good. So like if she's putting in 12% and the, to get the match, you only have to be contributing 6%. So she's contributing okay. twice the, the amount. So she's wondering if she should diversify her, her savings. Yeah, I think that's a fine thing to do. There's two ways to look at this. The first way is your 401k is the easiest way to save for retirement on the planet because it comes automatically out of your paycheck. And so it takes a little bit of the human element out of the equation and make sure that that 12% actually gets into a retirement account, which is the real goal. Putting some money, though, in a Roth, whether it's a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k, gives you diversity in terms of tax treatment at the end of the road when you get to retirement. And 
if, for example, you retire at age 65 and you've got some money that you've already paid taxes on, you could start by living off that money while allowing both Social Security and the money in your 401k to continue to grow to age 70 for Social Security and 70 and a half for that 401k when you're forced to take mandatory withdrawals. So having that diversity is a good thing as well. I would say... Yeah, you know, go ahead and try the Roth. Just make sure that you set it up in such a way that you know that you're actually going to do it. You don't want the human factor to to stop you from saving as much as you're saving today. Not a bad question. It's not it's a bad problem to have. Save or save. It's exactly. really good. It's yep. really good. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Our next question is from Carol. She emailed us. She says, hi, Jean. Love your show. Need your advice, please. I'll be 62 years old in a few months. I have a good job, and I plan on working another four to five years. In April of next year, I will have no debt at all. So I'm wondering where to put that money. A Roth IRA seems like a bad idea since I get taxed to the hilt right now. I have no deductions at all. But after I max out my 403B, where would you suggest I put my paychecks for the next five years? Um, in a taxable account, if you don't have any tax-advantaged alternatives. And, you know, this is sort of what we were talking about before. It's okay to have some money on which you've already paid taxes because then you won't have to pay taxes again. Yes, you won't get the tax-free growth, but you can you know, know that you're continuing to save at a really aggressive rate. And that gives you the ability to know that you don't have to be so aggressive if life comes along and kicks you to the curb a little bit and you have a bit of a setback. Now, that said, there are other places to put money where it can grow in the tax-advantaged way. An HSA is a big one. A lot of employers these days are adding um, high deductible health plans to their menus. If you opt for one, you have the ability to open a health savings account. Then you can put some money into a health savings account. The limit for 2016 for an individual is $3,350 and for a family, $6,750. And the way to play it is that you don't pay for healthcare expenses out of the health savings account. You take money out of your pocket and use those to pay your healthcare expenses and you let the money in your HSA continue to grow for the future. And in that way, it becomes basically a supplemental 401k. It has pretty much the same treatment except that if you need the money for health expenses anywhere along the line, you're not going to pay taxes on it when you withdraw it. So in that way, it's even better. Thank you, Carol. And thank you, Jean. You are very welcome. Keep the questions coming. You can hit us up on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, pretty much anywhere social media is found. Of course, on jeanchatsky.com, we've got a box for your questions. Thanks, Kelly. We're going to take a turn now and talk about some news you can use in this week's Thrive segment. All right, so who out there has some credit card debt they would like to get rid of? Well, if you're nodding along with me, you shouldn't feel alone. U.S. credit card debt is on track this year to reach a trillion dollars, and that comes very, very, very close. Some would say much too close to the record high of $1.02 trillion that was set in January 2008, as in right when the economy cratered. So you are not alone. And this week, 
In our Thrive segment, we're bringing you somebody who can relate and who had this problem and just knocked it out of the park. We're on the phone with Lauren Grootman. She is a mom of four. She's a wife, and she is a recovering spender. And with her husband, she figured out how to get rid of, how to clear $40,000 in credit card debt. And now she's on a mission to help people do the same thing. Lauren, welcome. Thank you so much for having me and for the nice introduction. You are very, very welcome. I think there are so many people out there. I mean, if you look at the stats on credit card debt, we know that the average family that has credit card debt has about 16000 in debt, which is costing them thousands a year just to carry, even if they're not making any headway. So from my perspective, if this is a problem for you and you can get rid of it, you open your financial life to a lot of other possibilities. Oh, so true. And it opens you up. You know, I think there's so much stress that's carried with credit card debt as well, you know, in your marriage and in your, um, you know, just your life, your friendships, your day-to-day life that uh, people don't realize once you get rid of that, how much more opportunity you have to live a better life. Well, let's take a step back and start with the addiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, you write in The Recovering Spender, which, by the way, comes out this fall, that you were an addicted spender. When did you first realize that? Well, I think the biggest part for me is that I didn't realize it right off the bat. I just thought I was like a regular person going to Target for one thing and coming out with like $200 worth of stuff because everything's so cute there, you know? So I thought that I was, I didn't think I had an issue for years. I just thought I was just really bad with money. Just didn't realize that I, you know, couldn't stop spending. But there was one day that I realized that I went shopping and we at this time had talked about how much debt we were in. Cause for years I did the money and I hid how much money I was spending from him. Um, to be like sneaky or anything like that. I just knew that it would cause him a lot of stress. And so I kind of just tried to handle it all myself. And so when I went to the mall one day with my friend and I went shopping for clothes because mm-hmm. that's what I did, I kept the clothes in the trunk of my car until the next day when Mark went to work, I got them out and put them in my closet. And it was then that I realized like, okay, I shouldn't be doing this. Like, And I think I've talked to a lot of women who have done the same thing just to, in my mind, it wasn't to avoid anything other than fighting. I didn't want him to tell me that I shouldn't have spent the money. And so um, that happened time and time and time again. I, You know, I've talked to a lot of mostly women over the years who've shared their little tricks for avoiding that sort of confrontation. And sometimes it's paying for a purchase half in cash and half on the credit card so that their spouse didn't see exactly how much that item cost. And sometimes it is, you know, ripping off the tags so they can't see that it was something new and just claiming that it was an old thing. There are a lot of little lies that we allow ourselves to tell when we don't want to cop to the fact that we're spending money. Right, exactly. And I, you know, in, uh, the book I know you mentioned, my book, The Recovering Spender. And in that book, I kind of walk through, I guess, all of like the secret lies that I would tell myself. And, you know, I think it was really hard for me to identify as like a spending addict when I was going through this. But that's why I called the book The Recovering Spender, because I still struggle with the issues, but I'm never going to be recovered 
in a sense. I know my weaknesses now and I know what boundaries I have to set up around myself in order to live a happy, fulfilled lifestyle. And we've been debt-free for eight years now. We really worked our tail off to the point of selling our house, moving into a smaller house, selling almost everything we owned. We were just so sick and tired of being broke all the time Mm -hmm. that we made these drastic changes and life is so much better. Um, and so I take it, it's better, better in what way? Like what, what is it, what does it feel like? Um, it feels like a new sense of freedom. And I think a lot of times people, when they talk about budgeting and especially if you're a spender like me, it almost can feel like you're trying to put a spender in a straight jacket, like, because it's so constricting to them. But I always think about budgeting as like a fence around my money. So like we have four kids and we let our kids go and play in the backyard. We have a fenced in yard and our kids can go out there and they can play and have fun. So I think of budgeting as just putting a fence around myself. You know, it gives me security. I can have fun with my money as long as I tell it where I can spend, you know, in the budget. But then if I go outside of the budget and I go outside of that safety net that I've put up for myself, it's dangerous and I can get into danger and I can get into debt. And so for me, having a budget and having a plan for my money gives me this sense of freedom to have with my money, to have fun with it, to do what I want to do with it and to tell it where to go instead of it dictating my life. And that's like so freeing for me. In the book, you have 12 steps. You, you lay it out like a 12-step plan for, for spenders. Can you walk us through the first couple? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the, the first things that I talk about is making amends with people that you owe money to. Um, and so that's really important because so often we don't respect money, especially if we borrow it from other people. And so that was one of the big steps is that I wanted people to, you know, admit your spending and make a list of all the people that you're in debt with and then kind of work those relationships out. There's also ones about decluttering your finances and decluttering your life. So I walk through, you know, how to take inventory of your spending, uh, how to declutter your finances and make them less confusing and more streamlined, creating boundaries is one chapter. Like the fence. Yep, I get into the fence analogy with that. When you talk about making amends, are you talking about with the credit card companies? No, I'm talking about personal people in this in this situation first and then credit card companies. So so often when you know I'm working with people now is I notice that they are they have borrowed a lot of money from family and friends. So mm-hmm. I always say to take care of that first because those relationships are much more important to hold on to. And so when we're talking about making amends, that part is you first want to do it with your family and then second do it with credit card companies. Do you use credit cards today? I don't. I actually don't. Um, I do have one credit card. I, I guess I take that back. I have one credit card for business that I only use to book airline tickets and then I pay it off right away. That rarely, rarely gets used. Personally, we don't even own a credit card. I got in so much trouble with them that it's just one of my boundaries that we just don't use credit cards. And so we shred, we put them through a paper shredder about nine years ago and uh, we have one debit card. And we use cash for almost everything else. And how is, I mean, I'm interested in in your relationship with money and how that is today, but how's your relationship with your husband? Oh, my relationship with my husband uh, is so awesome. We are totally different people when it comes to money. He's a saver and very conservative. And I'm a spender and very like, you know, I'm a big thinker and that can get me into trouble sometimes with money. But so our relationship is so much better. And I actually have a chapter in the book which talks about how 
being $40,000 in debt saved my marriage. And because it dug up all of that gunk, that yucky stuff that nobody wants to deal with, and it forced us to deal with those things. So Mark and I actually work full-time together on my website, laurengrootman.com. He is an actuary, and he quit his job two and a half years ago to come home and work full-time with me. So we do this for a living now to teach other people. But I think like the biggest thing that we had to learn was how to communicate with each other. When we both speak different money languages, we had to learn how to come together and communicate. And it all started with realizing that we had the same goals in life and the same passions. And so once we figure that out, it's like, even though we're speaking two different languages, we know we're going the same direction and that really helps us. It is so true. And I think what people don't understand is that those goals, that's the romance in money, right? That's Mm -hmm. where you get to come together and dream a little bit and think about this is where we want to be when we're 50 and this is what we want for our kids. And that's when it's fun. Mm-hmm. It's so true. And we're, you know, we have four kids. So finding out how much we need f- to put aside for each of them for college and working our way back and, you know, setting aside for retirement. And it's fun now. We, we're working together towards a common goal, even though we speak the two different languages. And so I think it's really important to even just communicate. And um, we actually have this list that we created. It's um, called the financial bucket list. Mm-hmm. And it's a list that we have couples, like if they come to us, before they get married or whatever, um, we have them fill it out. And it's basically like in a few different categories. And it says what they want to do with their life, with their money before they die, you know, like kind of like a bucket list. Yep. And um, so we have them fill it out separately and then come back together. And, you know, 90% of the time, they all have the same goals figured out and where they want to be. And so it really helps them start communicating about like, oh, okay, we're on the same page. Where do we go from now? And it really helps them get on the same page with their communication with money too. And can they find that on your website as well? Yep, they can find that on the website, um, laurengroupman.com, or they if they um, also go to therecoveringspender.com, if they pre-order the book, they get $75 in free bonuses, and it's a part of that bonus kit too. All right, fantastic. Lauren, thanks so much. This was terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Clark Howard for sitting down with me today. Always great advice from Clark Howard. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. Leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We want to know who you'd like to hear from. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And if you like to travel, well, tune in next week. Darren Kagan, who many of you know from CNN and her days as an anchor there, will be with us. She is talking about her new site focusing on all things possible. But we've also snagged her husband, a guy named Trent Swanson, who has managed to amass over 9 million Yes, million airline miles. They just jetted around the world. They took a trip that was worth about $100,000 flying first class everywhere. They paid in total about 300 bucks. So they're going to fill us in on how it's done. We'll talk soon.